I want to welcome you to the Pro Mindset Podcast. The Pro Mindset Podcast is all about diving into the headspace that results in championship performance. High-performing athletes, winners, have this mental flow and have a positive headspace for their performances and success. Join me, Craig Doman, sports attorney and NFL agent, on this podcast. I will interview pro athletes, college athletes, football coaches, and sports personalities. Together, we can discover how you can get in the flow and have your own pro mindset. So today on Pro Mindset, we have John O'Sullivan. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, Craig. All right, John. So I'm not even going to try to do you justice. I just know that you have a lot of accolades, a lot of accomplishments. You're an author. You're a pod uh, hoster yourself. You're a TEDx speaker. So why don't you share for our audience? Give them a, this is who John O'Sullivan is. I was a college athlete and for a very short stint, a uh, pro athlete uh, in soccer. And then I got it, got hurt, got into coaching, coached uh, Division One college, uh, youth, high school, everything in between. And then about nine years ago or so, I was really burnt out with the coaching and ended up starting my organization called Changing the Game Project, which was basically an idea of can we get good information to parents, to coaches, to youth sport organizations so they can make sport a more child-centered and less adultified experience. So pre-COVID, I was traveling all over the world, um, doing talks, doing consulting work. Now that's all done from my home office. And uh, yeah, and in between, I've written a couple books and have this Way of Champions podcast to just get in front of people and, and help get them more good information. What did you not know when you were a competitor that you know now that you would have, would have benefited if you would have known back then? Uh, what's the famous quote, right? Youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> you know, and it's like, uh, you know, I, I wish when I was younger, I, I realized how precious those moments would be, the ability to be an athlete, the ability to play a game. And along that path, I could have probably made some different decisions to play it longer or play it better. But I would think the biggest thing as an athlete that I didn't understand was the mental side of the game. No one taught that. No one talked about that. No one helped you build your confidence or whatever, or is the role of your coach and your coach, you know, might be a builder or might be a, a confidence breaker. But basically that I think was the biggest thing missing in, in my own career. And then I got a couple of bad injuries that were just really hard to overcome and finally made me walk away. But I was a very, very competitive guy. I, I love to win. I hate, well, probably I hated to lose more than I love to win. But, you know, I, I was just very, very driven to make the most out of the tools I had. And there were certainly plenty of people I grew up with who had more talent than me, but just not the desire or the, the drive. Okay, so let's talk about love to win versus hate to lose. Define for our audience how that plays out in your mind how it plays out in your actions and behavior, how it plays out in other athletes and, and how they perform on the field or on the court or whatever surface they play on. For me, I just always had this really competitive thing that in practice, in game, 
I just didn't want to lose. And I, I think where it channeled well was the ability to be a leader and drive teammates onwards and things like that. And then sometimes it was a negative thing in that the way that I treated teammates or people who weren't on the same path as me, but I just, I just hated losing. I hated losing in practice. I, I can't talk about that without it bleeding into my coaching career. Cause as a young coach, I kind of brought that mentality over as a player, you know, and when you're working with kids and you jump into practice and the most important thing is that we win this game it could be a positive thing or it could be a very negative thing depending on how you treat those kids that you're coaching. <laughs> and so that was a, a, a tough, uh, sort of a tough pill to swallow. But I, I don't know, I today, these days coaching, I kind of feel like a lot of kids who, who like winning, but they don't hate losing. So when they lose, they're like, yeah, whatever. And and I don't know, I was just never like that. That always kind of burned. The, the losses would stick with me a long time. Is it fair to say that if you look at it from a motivational filter that loving to win doesn't have as much power, doesn't have as much fuel in the tank as the people that hate to lose? It seems to be that way, and I say that because some of the athletes that I've gotten to talk to who are at the top of their sport all describe it as hating to lose more than loving to win. You know what I mean? So it seems to be a common theme and I, I don't know that I would have, no one ever asked me that when I was 22. So I couldn't tell you how I would have answered it then. Yeah, I, I think so. And I'm not sure why. I don't know. Maybe you have some ideas on that, but I'm not sure why one's more powerful than the other. It certainly, certainly was. My perspective on hitting to lose is people will dig deeper They'll give more effort. They'll take more risk to have the shot not to lose. But mm-hmm. they don't, they don't like, stick their neck out as far if they're just trying to win. And gotcha. so I think, if you, I think if you went into Alabama for football, you go into different organizations, maybe the Lakers in basketball, if you walked into that locker room and you could measure, and we can't measure, but if you could measure the motivation – the sum of the motivations of all the players. Mm-hmm. The teams that hate to lose, they win more. They've got, like, deeper roots to their motivation. Yeah. I, I would agree. I mean, I, I think I think that sums it up pretty well, and I think that for me that would describe it as well. And when I see kids who just kind of like winning – that seems to coincide with an attitude of, well, you know, I'll work hard today. But people who hate to lose, it doesn't matter if you're playing 1v1 in practice. I mean, it's still for me today, <laughs> you know, when I play a card game with my kids, I am upset if I'm not winning, right? I, I, I've been on a losing streak in a few games in, in family game night, and I am not a happy camper at the end. <laughs> and my kids and my wife laugh at me, but I don't know. I just can't shut that off. Well, one of the things that I've got going on is one of my daughter's best friends is staying with us, and we've been playing Scrabble. And we've only yeah. played five times, yeah. and I'm 5-0. and oh. And nice. it's killing him, <laughs> absolutely killing him. He actually had a 73-point word and got way ahead of me, and I still beat him. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I've, I've never gotten higher than 62 on a word. So mm-hmm. uh, I digress. But now let's get back <laughs> to you. As a coach, coach in a team, soccer team, what are the traits that you see in your players that makes them champions? What are the common factors that you see that, that allow young men or women to get to the next level? And which ones, if they don't have them, don't? I think number one that's often overlooked is love of the game. I, I see so many kids chasing after that scholarship, that extrinsic reward, and they don't love the sport that they're playing anymore. And so they get it and they go to college and there's no love, right? And and it's hard to do something 30 hours a week if you don't love it. And so one of the things that we are always encouraging is – instill love of sport, instill love of sport. If you instill love of sport, man, that's when good things happen. And and then I think, too, enjoyment. I mean, you still get to play a game for a living or you know, to help pay for school or whatever. So enjoy this, and it should be fun. And coaches need to make it fun. It can be hard. It can be challenging and, and fun. And then I, I just think it's like energy and, and drive. I, I think psychology is concluded, you know, pretty conclusively that that drive is what separates the best athletes from the rest. And it's drive that gets them to work through adversity or work through injuries. And it's drive that gets them to show up early and stay late and, and do the extra work. And so I think helping athletes understand that. And I think as coaches, as parents, we can create an environment that allows for drive to exist versus, you know, shutting it off, shutting off motivation. But what I would say is that I think many, uh, you know, I don't think you can give someone drive. That has to be internal. There has to be some fire that burns within them and the parent or the coach can stoke it and, and fan it. But something's got to be burning in there, I think. There is no doubt that, you know, athletes, competitors that love the game and have drive and motivation separate themselves from the rest of the pack. But as a coach, how do you plan on instilling love of the game in your players? How would you answer that? Number one, you know, I mentioned enjoyment, right? Massive, huge enjoyment. So your practices, your training sessions, they should be based on the game. They should be fun. They can't be endless, mindless repetitions. Number two, positive team culture. I mean, if you you be intentional about that team and that team environment and what it feels like to be a part of this and why is this special and build it and build it and build it because that's a huge driver of that enjoyment and and that love of of the game. And then, you know, ownership. Your athletes have to have ownership. They have to have a say. They have to be able to, you know, weigh in, and and then they might buy in more. And so when it becomes too coach-centric or too, you know, just shut up and play, there's not going to be love of the game. Then it's too much like work. But when they get to have a say into how certain things work, and what's going to happen and how we're feeling in this moment, then, I mean, that's, uh, that's when 
teams function at their best. And you've got examples of this, of championship teams like the All Blacks or or others where these are the common characteristics for sure. And so I, you know, I think as a coach, like be the coach that you always wish you had. And I don't think anyone says, I always wish I had a coach who made me stand in line all day and, and, and do silly stuff and never scrimmage or <laughs> anything like that. I don't think anyone's ever said that. No, no doubt. No doubt. Well, one of the things that I see, John, is that every sport has games within the game. Mm-hmm. Every sport, you know, obviously has a scoreboard, has a goal, has something like that where there's some mechanism to demonstrate through the scoreboard that you are better than the other team. Mm-hmm. But there's so many games within the game. So even within soccer, my very first World Cup game was in Pasadena. And don't hold me to this, but I think it was Mexico and Italy that were playing in the finals. And, or maybe this Brazil. Is 1994? Yes. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was Brazil, yeah. Brazil, okay. Mm-hmm. And so I'm on the 50-yard line in, you know, the Rose Bowl, and everybody's going crazy. Mm-hmm. And the game ended in regulation 0-0. Zero to zero. Mm-hmm. Went to overtime, if I'm not mistaken, and it was still 0-0, zero, zero, and it went to PKs. And the the thing is, is that I didn't grow up playing soccer. I didn't understand the nuances of the game within the game because at certain times in the game, one team was winning more than the other, but it just wasn't showing up on the scoreboard. Mm-hmm. It's not until you understand the nuances of the game, the, the gamesmanship, the subset of the real game, that you can really kind of enjoy the game. And if you do that, sometimes you can enjoy the game even though the big scoreboard shows that you didn't win. Yeah. Because sure. you, you won all these micro games. And, and certainly when you're working with youth, especially, I mean, let's face it, you know, professional sport and, and even big time college sport, that's sport for entertainment, right? You're being paid to win and entertain, but youth sport, high school sport, most college sport, that's sport for development. And and so winning that game within the game, as, as you called it, you know, not just, you know, winning and playing poorly, but, you know, developing your players, preparing them for the next level, right, to use soccer as an example, or even, you know, use basketball as an example, right? You can win a lot of games with a eight-year-old basketball team if all you do is full court press because the team is not good enough and they'll give balls away, you know, over and over and over. It's not really preparing your team for the long term to learn to shoot and run an offense and things like that, nor is it really great for the game or in soccer, you put the fast kid up top and you just kick balls up over the top all day. And he or she will eventually run on to three or four and win you the game. But three, four years later, you're not going to win any games. And so since I work mostly with youth coaches and, and I coach 13 year olds for my own (laughs) kids, then I can't be happy saying, oh, well, at least we won. Like That doesn't make me sleep well at night. We have to be doing the right things and be on our developmental path and getting better, or at least we won means nothing. Taking the long view and not the short-term view, right? If you want to win at 11 or 12, and that's the most important thing, you're going to do something very different than if you want to prepare someone to win when they're 16, 18, 20, or like you said, maybe have a, a career at the next level. And, and is it, you know, I think most people 
who end up as a pro player started as a forward because that's where most good players gravitate to when they're young, right? <laughs> and, okay. then, and then as soon as there's a forward better than you, you slide back into midfield, then you slide back into defense and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny for sure. But, again, it's all about long-term view. And this is why I think you know, a lot of clubs miss out on this. They, they don't have a long-term plan. So all of a sudden, what's practiced on Tuesday? Well, it depends what happened in the game on Saturday. But that's not how your math teacher works, right? The math teacher doesn't doesn't change the whole plan based on how the quiz went. They might review some stuff, which is fine. They don't throw out the curriculum. And I think a lot of sports clubs don't have sort of this developmental curriculum, so it's just haphazard. And they work on all these things that might help win on Saturday, but they don't help in the long-term player development. And, and, and so we work really hard with organizations that say, you, you have to have this. Like, you, you have to know what's happening next Tuesday before you play on Saturday, or it just becomes just a free-for-all. I agree with that. I think that it's important to have a season-by-season season curriculum, very similar to the education system. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to learn certain things in the fifth grade, so on and so forth. But I also think it's important to have points of emphasis because you don't really get to do a lot of coaching. If you're a good coach, you don't do a lot of coaching during the game. You might do some right. coaching on the sideline. You might do some coaching at halftime. You might do some coaching at the next practice. But you can't – you've got to let the kids show what they have during mm-hmm. the game so that you can know what the points of emphasis should be. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you're building a curriculum of – you know, let's say it's 90-minute practices, for lack of a better time period, and you're practicing two or three times a week, you need to have 10 minutes for points of emphasis. Like, mm-hmm. hey, guys, you know, do you remember in the, in the first half again last week this happened? Let's review that situation. How did, how, what did we do well? What could we have done better? Mm-hmm. And then, oh, by the way, let's jump into this drill. You, you, wanna, you never want to give a TED Talk during, during practice. So you jump into, you know, a, a situation – and let them do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for for sure. And I think you're always checking back. I, I just had a, a wonderful guy on my podcast named Doug Lamoff, and you know the title of the podcast was the most overlooked aspect of learning is forgetting. You know, you teach something, you get to the point where they've about forgotten it, and then you bring it up again. You know, in school we give quizzes and we give tests, and that's how that kind of stuff happens. But that act of retrieval is one of the most important aspects of learning. And yet a lot of coaches think, oh, well, we covered it, so we've learned it. And if we can't do it, it must mean that the kids just don't care. And, of course, that's not the case. <laughs> they just haven't learned it yet. And and so I, I think coaches have a lot to learn from teachers and scientists to understand how people learn, how they learn effectively, so that you can make the most of your time, right, your two or three times 90 minutes a week and run and, and be the most effective coach you can be. And I think that is something that is often overlooked. And we're very quick to blame the kids when they don't get it, when oftentimes they just haven't learned it yet, because this is a hard game and no one learns it that quickly. Well, two thoughts on that. One is that during the developmental years, and let's just take soccer, I coached with a with a gentleman that was an outstanding coach, and I learned more from him than probably any any other coach I've ever coached with. 
and I only coached soccer for about seven or eight years when my kids were involved. Mm-hmm. But he was a he he had the parent mentality, like you would have about your five year old son or daughter before they cross the street. You tell them to look both ways, and the question is, after how many times do you tell them that, do you stop telling them because you know they know, or is it such, is it such a important thing that you tell them every time when they're five years old, look both ways before you cross the street. Yeah. And the answer is, you tell them every time, right? Yeah, I mean, you think to a point, but then you also say, and at some point, I'm not going to be standing with them because I want them to go get on their bike and go visit their friends without me having to walk them over there. And so if that's the case, I better once in a while not say it and see if they do it. <laughs> right? Well, that's fair. And, and, that's fair. And, and I think that's the, that's the thing. And that doesn't mean we ignore fundamentals when we're coaching, but – how do you check for understanding? How do you know if they've learned it? If you don't just roll a ball out sometimes, don't cue up the answers and see if they do the right thing. Because if they do, okay, they've got it, right? I'm teaching my 15-year-old daughter how to drive a car right now, <laughs> right? Like that's a scary time because when you think about you and I driving a car, we look out on the road and we look, we scan the whole place and we see information. There's someone pulling up to a stop sign. Are they going to blow it? That car is coming pretty fast. I see a car braking up there. And what my 15-year-old, who's either a month and a half into her driving career, sees is noise. Right? We see signals. She sees noise. But at some point, I can't keep running the narrative while we're driving, saying, watch out for that guy. As scary as it is, you know, I have to wait and see if she brakes. It's the brakes, you know. And and my foot's pressing the floor, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, you know, my knuckles are white. But at some point, she's going to be driving by herself, and I have to trust her that she's seeing the things that she needs to see. And I think it's the same thing with our kids when they're learning a sport. That's the game. Mm-hmm. That's the game. There are some coaches out there that feel like they have a joystick or they have a controller in their hands, and they want to tell the athlete, what to do every mm-hmm. single time. Mm-hmm. And that, that paralyzes the kids. And, and it doesn't make it for, as a parent, doesn't make it fun to watch a, a, a game when the coach is dictating every move and then the kids are not thinking for themselves. They're thinking what the coach is telling them. When the game is the time to let the kids reveal the fundamentals they recall, the fundamentals they can master, the fundamentals yeah. that they can remember, and practices are times, at least during certain times of practice, where you're, you're giving them friendly reminders. Totally. Totally. You know, what we know from information processing, right, like the, you know, the, the best baseball hitters in the world, they don't have the fastest reaction times in the world. They read the play. They, they read the pitch. They read the pitcher's body language. That's what experience gives them. And so they go through a process there. They're not reacting to the pitch. And what they certainly can't react to is a coach yelling at them to swing, <laughs> right? Or, you know, in the middle of trying to focus on what the pitcher's doing, someone yelling at them to keep your elbow up or bend your knees or all these other things as well, you know what I mean? So, so I think this is absolutely critical from the standpoint of, coaching 
is realizing that if if an athlete is listening to you from the sideline yelling instructions while they're on the ball, it's it's going to fall apart. It can't it can't work uh, because they can't process information that quickly. That's just that's just neuroscience. It's not it's not sustainable. It yeah, no. and it, all you need is a you know they go from six v six to eleven v eleven, and the field's bigger, and they're on the opposite side of their bench. They can't hear the coach anymore. And now they're lost because they don't know how to respond because they don't yeah. know how to think for themselves because they listen to the coach all the time. Yeah. Oh, exactly. And now, right, that coach passes that group on to the next age group up, right, or the JV coach gives them to the varsity and all of a sudden, wait, these players can't figure this out on their own. They can't. That's a big problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like uh, all of a sudden they've been joysticked and look how successful we are. Now you have a coach who says, okay, solve the problems on your own. And they don't know how, cause they never have before. Okay. So let's jump to a topic that is very near and dear to my heart that cuts both ways. And that is how to teach an athlete or a team how to win. Because if you make that your sole purpose in life as a coach, you cut corners, you don't develop you can manipulate the players to control the outcome of the game if you're smart, but you haven't really developed the kids. There's too many holes in their game and Mm -hmm. it shows up when they go against better competition or when they, when they have a different coach and they Mm -hmm. move on to the next, next season of their, their athletic career. And all of a sudden they won, but they don't know what it takes to win because the coach manipulated the game. Mm-hmm. Now, the flip side of that, John, is this, and this is, you know, at the highest of highest levels in any sport, tennis, golf, you pick it, individual team sport, doesn't matter. Some players know how to win mm-hmm. and some don't. Mm-hmm. And there's a magic when you watch a game or a competition and the players know how to win. Mm-hmm. They, they respond differently to stimuli at the end of the game. They, mm-hmm. they, they, they just react differently. And, mm-hmm. so my, and I've done a real life experiment because I've had my kids play on teams and I've coached teams where we won 95% of the time. Mm-hmm. We were smarter. We, we, we had high level strategies. We cross trained the players at different positions. We challenged the kids to do things that we knew they were capable of. But most case, most coaches at that same age group, didn't trust their players, and so mm-hmm. they dumbed, dumbed it down. Mm-hmm. And so you got the experiences that, that players experience winning that sometimes can have a residual effect when they move on, but you also have the temptation to manipulate. So mm-hmm. how do you find that balance, and what is your perspective on why do winners know how to win and losers seem to be okay with losing? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, first of all, the difference that we that I always encourage and that we try to teach is that you know if, if winning is the only purpose, then the logical conclusion of that is cheat, do performance enhancing drugs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's all these things that come out of that are don't play well, especially in sport for development. Number two, really critical, is that we try to teach compete, right? Show up and compete. Win the day is is how we kind of talk about it, right? And so 
So if you show up to compete, you focus on the things that you control, your sleep, your nutrition, your effort, your attitude, all those things belong to you. Um, when you focus on winning, now you're dealing with the referee. Now you're dealing with the opponent. Now you're dealing with the weather or the field conditions, none of which are within your control. And the more things that you don't control, the less confidence you have and the, le- and the more tentative and tight you get. And so I think it's so critical that when we're talking about winning, what we're really talking about is learn how to compete every day in, in practice, right? Everyone wants to win on Saturday. Who wants to win on, you know, the Monday at 6 a.m., six months before the season starts? And that's where I think the best of the best are un- unbelievable. You know, you and I were talking about Peyton Manning before we started recording today, and, and my friend who worked with him at the Colts said, you know, Peyton would be send- would be on, like, a golf vacation with his family in Scotland and sending him videos and reports of the workouts he was doing while waiting to hit his tee shot. You know, like he was just a competitor and he just showed up and he did all the things day after day. And I think that's that's what you're talking about. And so people like that who are always prepared, they're always ready for their moment. They pay attention to the fundamentals. They pay attention to the little things they control. Therefore, they're more likely to be people who we say, oh, that person always finds a way to win than the person who's not prepared, who's not in control. You know what I mean? And I think that's such a such an important thing. So we look at the end results and we say, that's just a winner. But what happened to get him there or her there? And there's a lot that goes on when the lights are off, you know, and then the cameras aren't rolling. Okay, John, you, you hit a nerve with me because <laughs> I have my pro mindset and I've got seven different components. And the last one is really – being ready for your moment. Mm-hmm. How do you define that? And why do some people excel, succeed, make the play when their number's called, when their opportunity pops up in the game? And why do other people come off the field and they use those two deadly words? My bad. Mm-hmm. And they they describe what just happened as my bad, which basically mm-hmm. saying, I should have made that play, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, why why does that happen? I, I mean, I think really what happens, sadly, this is something I wish someone said to me when I was younger, right? Like, just define it like you just said. And I've talked to so many athletes who have talked about this and, and how important this is, is you never know when your moment's going to come, especially when you're trying to break through, right? When you're a Lou Gehrig and you're stuck behind Wally Pip, <laughs> right? you got to be ready for your moment. And it's amazing, you know, some of the pro coaches, I just talked to a guy named Ron Adams, who's Steve Kerr's assistant at Golden State. And he was just telling us a, a great story about a player who wanted more playing time. And, you know, what he said was, you telling me that you want me to go into Steve's office and say you should be playing more minutes instead of Clay Thompson or, or Draymond Green or whatever position he said. He said, but here's the thing. There's going to come a moment this season when someone's going to be hurt or the game's going to fit your skill set the best. And you have to show up and work hard every day so when that game comes or that series comes, you will contribute. You can't get to that point and then say, well, I barely played all year, so of course I'm not ready. No, you got to put the time in and practice. you got to do the extra stuff. 
and all these things. And I think that is some of the best advice that any young athlete or old athlete or person in business <laughs> could really get. Like, will you be ready when life hands you your defining moment? And, and you know, I, I have a quote on my wall, and I'm not sitting in my office right now. But if I was, I'd read it, and it's from Winston Churchill uh, along those lines, right, of like, what a pity if that moment comes and you're not prepared. No doubt. Well, here's what I'll tell you is that, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but what my observation is, is that the the athletes, the competitors that are ready when their number's called, they are ready when the guy in front of them gets hurt. Just mm-hmm. like Tom Brady was ready when Drew Bledsoe got hurt. Yeah. He came in and took over. Okay. Yeah. Brett Favre came in for Magic Man with the Packers way back in the day. There's lots of examples. Yeah. But there's more examples of competitors that weren't ready. Mm-hmm. Totally. And unfortunately, it's almost like a falling star. You don't see it. You might not see another one that night. No guarantees. There's no guarantees, right? And and so be ready for your moment. And and I think this is this is it. Right. As a parent, how important is this to teach my kids? Right. You know, how important is this to tell him or to tell her that your moment's going to come? Right. And and when it does, you got to be prepared for it. You got to be ready for it. Um, Okay, John, let me just jump in there and ask you, let's go to the point in time before that moment. And what can an athlete do to prepare for that moment? And what does that look like? Is it preparation? Is it visualization? Is it, what is it? What, in your mind, what does that mean to be ready for your moment? And candidly, if you make the play when the moment comes, everybody knows you were prepared, but how do you coach a, a young man or woman to get prepared? Yeah, I, I mean, this is, this is coaching, right? And this is not in the team talk. I mean, I think this is the individual side of coaching, Right, recognizing that this kid, this person, this human being might be struggling because he or she is not playing or doesn't feel like they're contributing. And that's where you need to reach out and have that quiet word with them and say, be ready for your moment. It's, it's going to come. You're going to get your chance. Now, when I, when I coach young kids, right, everyone gets to start a game. Everyone gets their, gets their playing time. But as we get to high school varsity, right, as we get to college, You've got to earn those moments. And, and when that player in front of you gets hurt, you better be fit. You better be ready. So how do you prepare? Right? Number one, push every day in practice. Right? Are you outplaying your teammates in practice? Are you one of the best people in practice? Number two, you're going to have to do extra because guess what? The players who got all the minutes during the game and you only got 10 or you got none, they're in a different, a different part of their cycle in terms of recovery, right? So on that Monday practice, all those people who played on Sunday, they're going to have a light recovery practice. And maybe your coach is only focused on them, but you need a hard day. You need to train. You need to do fitness. You need to do extra in that moment. What's that going to be? And you can't wait around for your coach to tell you what that is. You have to know it and you have to go for it. And so these are like, that's the thing right there. That is the perfect thing is what am I doing extra? What am I doing to catch up to that person who's playing in front of me? 
And, you, you know, you, when you're a kid, you can't control genetics, right? You can't control when you grow or strength sometimes or things like that. Some things you have to be patient about. But you can work on your technique. You can watch games. You can be better at the tactics. You can do all these other things that help you be the most prepared possible. I mean, it's just it's just do more, be good, treat practice like the match, and then that's going to give you the best chance to get ready. I mean, when we talk about, like, great teams, I mean, I remember, you know, U.S. women's national team in soccer constantly talking about, you know, the hardest game we play all week is the 11 v 11 in practice. Yeah, those are great. Those are great. What I heard you say was empty your tank every day. Yeah. Because you got a chance to recover. You know, if you're under 40, you're going to recover. You know, Tom Brady and some of these older athletes, I'm sure it takes them a lot longer to recover. But if you're 14, you might be recovered in less than an hour and be playing a pickup game, you know, after practice. Because in, in the hall of the hotel. <laughs> yes. You could yeah. be out of town. You could be on a trip for a tournament, and they're, they're having swimming competition in the pool. Yeah. Because they're already recovered. So empty your tank. And then the second thing you said was do extra, create game, game speed, you know, treat the, game, treat the practice like a game. There's no doubt about that. You can do this in, in high school. You can do this in younger ages. And that is treat practice sometimes like practice. But once you get to college, if you're not treating practice like a game, you'll never get to play in the game. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right? And, right? and I mean, it's funny, you know, I, I was coaching a practice last night and I had this very conversation because we're doing a little, you know, in soccer, we call it a rondo a possession game. And there's one kid on this team. He is just busting his tail on defense, chasing to win the ball back. And one of his teammates is just kind of walking around and, and standing there. And then he, this kid wins the ball back, gives his teammate a pass. He plays a sloppy pass and gives it right back. And then he stands there again. And this one kid, you know, the kid who's working hard, I, I just stopped practice because I heard him say something. And I just stopped. And I said, what do you, you want to say right now? And, and so I'm trying to drag out of a 13-year-old little leadership here of like, hey, you know what? How, how can you just give the ball away and stand and, and I'm working? And I turned to the kid who was just kind of going through the motions. I said, how come all your teammates right now as we're resting have their hands on their knees breathing and you're not even breathing hard right now? How is that even possible? And, and then I pulled him aside later and I was like, you know, you've been asking me how you can play more. Do you know the answer now, right? You're 13. You're old enough to understand this. That's why they play ahead of you because they're here getting better and working hard and you're just going through the motions, right? So, you know, and I try to make that when I work with youth players, I try to make those conversations very evident to their parents as well. You know, come watch practice. <laughs> come watch practice and then tell me that you think your kid should play more because <laughs> he shouldn't. Well, here's the thing that uh, pops in my mind when you were describing that situation is anytime there's a young man or woman a young athlete that is wanting to play more in the games. Mm -hmm. They don't understand this very simple concept. Game, game time is a reward for your practice effort. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what that young man wasn't doing. Mm -hmm. He wasn't putting out any effort. And so why, why would you as a coach reward him with more play time in the game 
because it would destroy your credibility with every other individual on your team. Right. Or or tell me, go explain to them why their minutes should belong to you in the game right now, how you're playing, what you're giving to this practice, what you're giving to this team. Pick a teammate right now and, and tell them that I'm going to – I should play over you this weekend based on what I'm doing right now. Because you yeah. can't. If you're honest with yourself, you can't do that. Exactly. And you can – and, again, this isn't just a conversation – and you know this very well. Pro coaches have these conversations with athletes. But I think in a respectful and kind and empathetic way, youth coaches have to as well. Because this is not just sport. This is This is life. This is life. If you're not going to put in a good shift, you can't expect life to to hand you all the good stuff. Exactly. Well, I was um, a youth coach, and then I've been a a sports agent for NFL guys for almost three decades. And I found it very comical that I would have a conversation with one of my clients about his situation with, you know, such and such NFL team. And literally later that day, I would be having the identical conversation, different context same concept with my 10 year old or 12 year old or 14 year old, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, John, Mm -hmm. I want to thank you very, very much for being on the show today. Would you like to make any final comments about what we talked about today or anything that uh, we might've talked about that kind of hit a nerve with you? You know, I I think I, you know, I totally enjoyed our conversation. This has been great. I obviously love to talk about this stuff. I've enjoyed digging back into my own path as an athlete and, and, and a young coach as well. But but I just think the thing, the way that I would sum a lot of this up is that the world needs more truth tellers. We need parents to tell our kids the truth. We need coaches to tell their athletes the truth. We need people who aren't afraid in, in a loving, caring way, because I have your best interest in mind to tell people the truth. And, you know, we have kids that we call talented or special because they're bigger, faster, stronger, and people don't tell them the truth. So they don't develop the habits and the character and the skills necessary to succeed long-term. And we have kids that don't put in a good shift and we're afraid to tell them the truth. And then we wonder why they don't become highly functioning adults. And I think those of us in sport have a huge opportunity to start this at a young age and being a coach, being a voice outside of mom and dad outside of the family is oftentimes one of the most powerful voices that we can have, right? We might be the third most influential person in a kid's life. So, you know, use your power wisely. Couldn't have said it any better. John O'Sullivan, thank you so much. Best of luck with your family, your, your business, and your coaching. Thanks, Greg. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pro Mindset. If you enjoyed this podcast, Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can follow us on our website, promindsetpodcast.com, or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ProMindsetPodcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you the next time.